I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients, from cellular and immune health to brain and nervous system support to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. There are a lot of misconceptions about the environmental impact of meat. Certainly, meat that's raised in a conventional agricultural factory environment can be extremely harmful for the environment, for local communities, etc. But meat that is raised in a more regenerative way can actually be a benefit for the environment. And I've talked about this on my Rogan appearances. I've written several articles about it. My friend and colleague Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers have written a book about it. And I've had several guests on the podcast to discuss this. So I'm excited to welcome Ridge Shin and Lynn Pledger as my guests for this episode. Ridge is the CEO of Grazier LLC, or Big Picture Beef, a 100% grass-fed beef company partnering with farmers throughout the Northeastern United States. He is very well known in this community because he's been interested in heritage breeds of livestock for many, many years. He was the founding director of New England Livestock Alliance and he has written uh, extensively and spoken all around the world about regenerative farming and agriculture. And Lynn Pledger is a writer and environmental advocate who's worked with Ridge since the 1980s to preserve heritage livestock breeds and increase regenerative grazing in the Northeastern United States. She's also worked in affiliation with several NPOs like Clean Water Action, Upstream, Sierra Club on public policy issues, and has been a guest lecturer on sustainability at UMass Amherst Smith College and Harvard School of Public Health. So Lynn and Ridge are incredible people to talk about regenerative agriculture with. They have decades of experience and they really understand the landscape, no pun intended, very well. So I, I enjoyed this conversation a lot. And if you're interested in regenerative agriculture, I think you will too. Let's dive in. Ridge and Lynn, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's great, great to be here. Yeah. So I, I want to just, I'd love to learn a little bit more about um, the background of my guests, like what, what got you to this point in time. And we'll start with you, Ridge. I know you've been at, you know, uh, raising animals for meat for, for decades and speaking and writing about regenerative agriculture before it was a buzzword and the, the cool thing to do. <laughs> so, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about your background and how you got interested in this. Okay, well, it's hard to be quick, but you know, um, Lynn is the writer of the book, but we were formerly married, so we have a long history. So, you know, we started out with living history. So I tell people I learned to farm in the 1800s. So I mow hay with a scythe, work oxen, build a haystack, 
all that kind of thing. And then a little bit further down the road, I helped found the um, American Livestock Breeds Conservancy, which is still an entity. And again, Lynn was critical to getting that thing going. And then about 21 years ago, I stumbled on, um, you know, I, I, I had wanted to farm in the worst way. And my career was building timber frame houses. So when I turned 50, it was like, I'm going to do this. And I started with pigs. And then like, how do I, you know, that inevitable marketing question, how do I get rid of them? <laughs> but uh, so I started a not-for-profit uh, in 2001. And um, you know, to try and organize farmers. And um, almost immediately I stumbled on grass-fed beef and all the researchers there, Joe Robinson had, you know, in spades back then. I'm like, why isn't anybody doing this? So we decided to jump in and try it. And, you know, the rest of the story is kind of like our, our you know, odyssey in learning. So we had to learn all kinds of things. We had to learn about genetics. We had to learn about grass. We had to learn about... Um, processing, you know, all those things that we had to learn about. So, you know, the book is really um, kind of a culmination of all those stories. Lynn's the storyteller and the writer. And you know, so that's kind of how we came to it. Actually, I was giving a talk at NOFA, Massachusetts, and uh, somebody came up to me at the end of the talk. He said, you need to write a book. I said, I know. How am I going to do that? He goes, well, I'm a senior editor at Chelsea Green. And uh, he said, let's do it. And it took Lynn two years to get a contract to write the book, but that was the genesis of the book. Nice. And Lynn, how how did you come at come at this? It sounds like uh, being married to Ridge was was part of it, but you have a background as a writer and an environmentalist as well. Exactly, and um, so this really um, fit right into my uh, various environmental uh, projects. Uh, particularly climate change. That's what we're all probably most concerned about. And um, so uh, it just was a natural thing for me. I, I was, had been working on climate issues from other aspects. And and then, you know, it, it turned out that as we uncovered more and more research about this, that regenerative grazing is just the win, win, win in terms of for the climate and uh, and a number of other environmental issues. But uh, so it was just a natural to jump into this. And and one story along those lines is Ridge was contacted by Time Magazine. They wanted to do a story about, about this, about regenerative grazing. They weren't calling it then that, I guess, at the time. And so um, we ended up being in Time Magazine, a picture of Ridge labeled Carbon Cowboy uh, and... Uh, this was yeah that was 2010 was yeah so that was that was quite a while ago um but since then we've really been focusing a lot on on the climate issue and it's you know it's really kind of frustrating for us because it's so hard for people to grasp how raising cattle could possibly be a good thing uh they've, they've been so steeped in the um in the opposite uh, viewpoint that cattle are just bad and 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 people tend to think okay grass-fed beef is less bad you know than but conventional uh cattle production but we say no it's not a question of less bad we're talking about a net climate benefit to yeah. regenerative grazing and so what what we've tried to do in the book i don't know if we've uh, talked about uh the the book that's uh, now out by chelsea green uh, grass-fed beef for a post-pandemic world. And so one of the, my main uh, missions of the book was to make it robust enough uh, in terms of the science so that people would know how it benefits uh, the environment, how it combats climate change. And um, so, uh, you know, I wanted to get into what those mechanisms are. And, and I mean, that was fascinating to me uh, to learn about that. And I think it's been interesting to other people too that, uh, the role of the of the soil microbes and in restoring the, restoring the soil, and also uh, facilitating this storage of carbon uh, in the soil uh, is just amazing. And um, and and particularly, I, I I like to tell people the connection between the grazing and these microbes. It literally starts, uh, jump starts, if you will. The grazing jump starts this 
this uh, underground work of the microbes when, when the cow takes a bite of the grass. So you have this pasture plant grass or some other forage plant in the pasture, the cow takes a bite and so that plant is partially defoliated. So the plant sends a chemical signal. This is just a, one of nature's wonderful feedback mechanisms. The plant sends a chemical signal down to the roots. And we all know, remember from our education as school children that the plant is storing the carbon that it's not using in the roots. So the, that chemical signal is letting the roots know, okay, release some of that carbon. So the, the roots shoot out some of these sugary bits into the soil and the microbes are immediately attract, attracted to that. And so microbes come, they eat, they reproduce, they die, they continue. It's a population of, my, of microbes grows and they, they set about these activities, which in, is the most amazing one I think is the mycorrhizal, the root, the fun, fungi that are around the root send out these filaments, these long uh, hyphae, uh, and they, they become conduits for two-way uh, two -way exchange, carbon coming from the roots uh, into the soil and soil nutrients and water coming to the plant through the roots. So, I mean, that's just the sort of simplistic tale, but I, I, I think it's, it's important to tell that little story to show this direct connection between the cow eating the grass and and then the the roots you know this this uh, uh, unleashes this cascade of environmental benefits they're mostly carried out by the microbe so i'll pause here yeah, <laughs> yeah. i wanted to i wanted to start us out with that story that's great there's a lot to unpack there and and i actually i had ann bilkey and david montgomery on the book Perfect. on the yeah. podcast uh, recently and we talked about the importance of microbes to you know and how the role that they play for example in extracting uh helping the plants to extract nutrients from the soil so that if if you know plants are grown in soil that has a disrupted microbiome those plants are not going to have the same level of nutrition as they would be, as they would have if they were grown in healthy soil, and of course, there's a strong parallel there to our own gut microbiome, because the microbes in our gut help us to extract nutrients from food. So that two people who ate the same exact meal, one person with a healthy microbiome is going to get a lot more nutrition from that same meal than the person with the disrupted gut microbiome. So it really is all connected, and it strikes me as. One of the issues is that so few people have a direct experience of, of being anywhere close to food production <laughs> that the idea, you know, I think for a lot of people who grew up on farms, they understand intuitively that animals are a critical part of uh, our ecosystem of food production and that you can't really produce food in a sustainable way with just a bunch of machines and computers now, nowadays, yeah, right. um, without animals. But right. no, most I, people yeah, are, think, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, just to build on what Lynn was saying, the thing to keep in mind is that the herbivore, the cattle, uh, in our opinion, is the keystone species. You know, the model is the buffalo. We all know there was this deep, deep prairie soil, tall grass, and you know, how did that happen? It was photosynthesis and the herbivore and the soil that built that deep, deep carbon, carbonaceous soils. And so, you know, replicating that, I mean, even Gabe Brown, who did all these cover crops and everything and increased soil micro, microbes and et cetera, et cetera, added the cattle and he has this almost vertical line. So the cattle are like an essential keystone to make this happen quickly. Yeah, I think what, when Ridge talks about the vertical line, he's talking about the productivity of the fields once the cattle were introduced. Um, right. It's uh, it's been called a multiplier effect, and um, and I think that's really key now too because some people say it's one of the many myths that drives us nuts. Some people say, well, but it's you know how are you going to feed the world with you know with that? Uh, cattle take so much land, so much resources. But the fact is, without cutting a single new tree, 
uh, we could produce just as much meat uh, by uh, regenerative grazing. We could produce just as much grass-fed beef as we now have corn-fed beef and look at all the, the benefits we would have in addition. And, and the, one of the reasons, well, one of the reasons for that is that all this land that's used now for corn and soy to grow feed for cattle, to be trucked to the feedlots, that could be put into um, grazing or, or cropland with grazing integrated. But also it's the fact that the land becomes so much more productive and, and not because, or not just because of the manure and urine, but because of the biology, it's because of the microbes, and they are, um, you know, they're they're actually, you know, making nitrogen available. We don't we don't we can stop importing nitrogen fertilizer from Russia. <laughs> right. We right. got such a big kick out of that that new, you know, people were saying, oh no, we we're now with these sanctions, we can't get <clears throat> nitrogen fertilizer from Russia and we're saying, yes, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's great news, folks. That's great news for the environment because as many people are becoming aware, nitrogen pollution from that fertilizer is really an enormous environmental problem. And we don't need it if we allow our allies underground to, to do their job. Well, I believe the, the other thing, correct me if I'm getting this, the exact proportions wrong, but about 60% of agricultural land is too rocky or hilly or dry or the soil is not suitable for crops. Uh, but, but animals can be raised on that land and, and they can help feed people that way. Right, Absolutely. but, my, but my, my, my old thought is I could stop the flooding in the Mississippi I could cure the drought in the West, and I could cure human obesity. You just have to give me the three states of Illinois, Iowa, and Indiana, and a big herd of cattle. Mm -hmm. So those states grow 97 to 100% corn and soy. And the, the soil is impermeable. It takes 30 minutes to infiltrate water into corn land. So why do we have floods? So, so I don't want to go after the marginal land. I want to go mainline. Right. <laughs> and what and, and what happens when you take that good land and you put it back into production? I mean, that was prairie originally. Right. All those people were prairie. I was what just going to say this was called the breadbasket of the world, and now it's a food desert right, for humans. Right. And, and and you know what the the peer-reviewed research is showing is that we get three to six times increase in biomass per acre by grazing correctly. I mean, just think about that. That's Yeah, know, that's great, mind-blowing. And then if you could do a, a, a comparison, which I have, have done and many articles and many others have done on the nutritional benefits of, of meat versus right. corn and soy, it's they're not even, you know, you really wouldn't even refer to corn and soy as foods um in in that in that context and you know ty beal who I, I imagine you you're familiar with has done some great work on this he just published a study last march actually looking at the nutrition which foods are most nutrient dense and it was the first study to actually take bioavailability of the nutrients into account so you know most previous studies would say oh great spinach is a good source of iron well it is on paper but as you both know that's got, it's all bound up with, with phytic acid, and you're not going to absorb very much of that iron from that spinach, whereas red meat, of course, is a great source of heme iron, which is very well absorbed. And so, you know, it, 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 that's a really interesting uh, thought experiment, Ridge. I hadn't considered that. If you replaced all of the <laughs> corn and soy production with, with cattle, what would the environmental and nutritional benefits be? It would be unbelievable. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And, you know, from my own personal experience, grazing cattle, uh, it will change the weather. So in where we live in Massachusetts, it's very temperate, you know, 40 inches of rain. But still, the, the my neighbors who make hay all the time, oh, it's a drought. It's a drought. You know, we only get 35 inches of rain. And I walk through my tall grass that's four feet tall and I come out wet. So, so my microclimate is totally different than theirs. We have the same rain, the same soil, the same <laughs> geography, everything's the same, but the management changes the hydrology dramatically, you know. 
And, and you know, at the end of the day, we have to drink water. So I mean, that's you know. again, you know, I think for people who are unclear about how these mechanisms work, and they wonder uh, how how grazing uh, improves. Uh, uh, how, how that helps protect against droughts and floods, which are just two sides of the same coin. They're, they're both a result of the ground not being able to soak in and retain water. And uh, so it's interesting for them to learn that these uh, little uh, critters, the, the microbes, are, are uh, you know, building these structures that essentially, I mean, they're, they're aggregating the soil. They're you know, wrapping up the, the ingredients in little bundles that are called aggregates. And then, so you've got a situation that's, that's created basically a sponge that's mostly carbon. And, um, and it's been, been compared to the texture of chocolate cake. And because it has all those little holes in it, sponge-like, you know, places where the water can filter in and um, uh, instead of running off. So, so it's really, it's not just increasing the fertility, it's increasing the structure, the soil structure as well, which protects against the droughts and floods. So again, with, with climate change, uh, um, you know, really is going to be causing a lot of food shortages. And so it's just critically important that we restore our farmlands and make them more fertile again, make, make them well aggregated so that um, they can withstand you know, extreme weather events. And also as, as you pointed out, Chris, being able to uh, take advantage of land that's, that's not as- The marginal, active, the more the marginal for, land. For, mm -hmm. for crops. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about water. Cause, so we are talking about water, but in the context of droughts and floods, but what, as you both know, one of the major sort of protests or critiques of raising beef is it takes too much water. So how would you respond to that claim for, for regenerative, you know, regeneratively raised well, beef? You know, that's, that's certainly true. If you were, you know, if you were uh, a steer uh, out in the heat down in, you know, Texas or, well, or Fres Fresno, Central Valley, uh, California. Yeah, where, all these, yeah. where all these uh, feedlots are, you know, tens of thousands of animals standing on dirt and dust, you'd need a lot of water too. Yeah. But, um, you know, the interesting thing is though, uh, since we're talking about dry parts of the country anyway, one of the most uh, ex exciting pieces of news is that um, grass-fed beef is, uh, is flourishing in the um, Chihuahuan Desert. There's uh, an area, it's, it's becoming kind of a, a, a green sward uh, through the desert um, that now, where more and more ranchers are um, turning to regenerative agriculture. And it's, it's the grassland birds have come back. Many species, it's the biodiversity is visible. It's not just biodiversity underground, it's above ground too, so it can be seen. In fact, this area is now a bird sanctuary. It's a it's a conservation area for birds. So that that's a good illustration of how this regenerative grazing is adaptable to all regions of the country. Um, very dry desert-like conditions and you know very severe climates in in you know northern United States and Canada. So uh, it's just it's just you adapt. That's why uh, Richard T calls it. Uh, adaptive multi-paddock grazing because you're adapting to the situation. If you're in a dry area, uh, desert area, or even parts of California, for example, you, you're probably gonna only um, graze a paddock once a, a year, once a season. Uh, but if you're in New England, you can come back to that same paddock, you know, two or three times because you've got more rainfall. So you're adapting to different areas, but you're can be successful and uh, just, I, I know they're skeptics. I've heard people and read where people are saying, oh, that's, that's baloney. You can't, that you could reverse desertification, but it has been done and it's documented now. Right. And the yeah, way, it's, the way it's done is, is you start, you don't start at the very driest part of the acreage. You, you start at the edges where, you, you know, where you've got something to work with and you begin getting animals on and, um, increasing the food web, the, the, the microbes beneath the soil. And 
then you can begin to work into the driest part. So eventually there's no desert anymore. You've got a, you've got a savanna, you've got a grassland uh, where you previously had none. If you've listened to the show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day, and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash Element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are definitely one of my favorite snacks. They're unlike anything else on the market. They're made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and organic spices, and they are naturally fermented, which gives them this really amazing flavor. In fact, they were recently voted in Paleo Magazine as one of the top snacks of the year. One reason I love Paleo Valley is that they're committed to making the highest quality whole food products that are free of junk ingredients. They're compact and easy to take on the go, especially when I'm out in the mountains and away from civilization. Go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. To live your healthiest, longest life, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. People age at different speeds, and generic annual blood work doesn't properly evaluate your biological age, but Inside Tracker does. Inside Tracker is a truly personalized nutrition and performance system designed to extend your health span and slow the aging process. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. Add InnerAge 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age and see how you're aging from the inside out. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. Yeah, but to speak this specifically to the hydrology, you know, one of there's a guy out in North Dakota that did uh, infiltration tests on three adjacent parcels. So one parcel was corn land that had been uh, planted in the you know modern method, no-till seeded in and all that, then extensively grazed. How most of the ground is grazed in the West. You know, you get a BLM contract, you put the cattle out, you come back and get them after the at the end of the season. And then adaptive multi-paddock grazing, the way we do it. Wait a second, know. Richard. You're talking about three different parcels, not the same parcel. Yeah, three right. different parcels. Adjacent, adjacent parcels, yeah. but, but close. So uh, <clears throat> on the corn land, you know, he de- it's, it's uh, not peer-reviewed or anything. He just takes a little pipe and he pours a quart of water in it and it says cell phone. 30 minutes to percolate. So you wonder why the Mississippi floods. <laughs> the corn land is like McAdam. Mm-hmm. So then he moves over to the extensively grazed land, dramatically better. Seven minutes to percolate. It's like, all right. Then he moves over to the adaptive multi-paddock grazed area, 10 seconds to infiltrate. It's like, oh my God, look at this. You know, if you want to get, and then, and, and the reason it infiltrates is because the ground is porous and it's got carbon. And of course, carbon captures like seven to nine times its weight. So the water goes in, it's captured, and that old 
hydrology idea that we all got in high school biology begins to happen. You know, water transpires and you know makes clouds and comes down as rain. But we have broken that system in whole watersheds. I mean, that's my point. The whole Mississippi watershed, that hydrology has been broken because it can't, you know, 30 minutes to, to infiltrate. Yeah, it's just going to keep going. Yeah, go that, that story Rich told about the experiment. I think it's good to mention that that was a NRCS Natural Resources Conservation Services mm -hmm. production. They made a video out of it, and I, I'm mentioning them because they're out there really working with farmers, and they've they've done a lot to. I, I don't know if they call it regenerative grazing, but the you know they're helping people do the right thing and um and they're doing a lot to promote and to show farmers what can be accomplished by changing their management of grazing and pasture so this i want to go back to something you said lynn about the chihuahua desert uh, because this actually gets at one of another myth you know we're, i'm just kind of going through various myths and claims oh, that are made right. by, by vegans <laughs> Myth busting and, and the vegan plant-based diet, you know, communities about the environmental right. impacts of, of meat. And so one of them is that livestock on, you know, displaces wildlife and natural vegetation. Whereas on the contrary, as you pointed out with the Chihuahuan Desert, they actually stimulate vegetation regrowth and create habitat for animals and species that really don't won't thrive unless there are herbivores on the land oh absolutely you know we we i have a we started a not-for-profit about a year ago and we're teaming up with national audubon who has a conservation ranching program in the in the midwest they're starting to move to the northeast so they've engaged us to help them i mean the best management practices are different depending on how much water you get but their metric for measuring success is the number of birds, species, and all that kind of thing that's happening. And this has been our experience, you know, just here with the local land trust. When I started, letting, you know, grazing cattle, letting the grass go four feet tall, all of a sudden birds appeared, like, like whole flocks of birds and, and bobolinks and, you know, all, metal arcs and all those grassland birds appear when, when you create the environment. What's interesting is so many of the efforts, like the sage grouse out west and all that kind of thing, they want to preserve the idea of the grassland, but they're not talking about getting that keystone species in there, which is what will make it happen. I mean, the reality is how they did that in the Chihuahua Desert is they brought cattle in and they concentrated them. I had the experience on the uh, Sioux Reservation in North Dakota. You know, um, I was hired to go out there and talk with Dugan Bad Warrior. And, um, you know, he was a little resistant. His wife was very embracing of the concepts. And I spent the evening talking to him. I said, you know, it's about concentrating the cattle and then moving them. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, his arms are crossed. <laughs> but in the morning, he said, you know, I had a little place. He's got like a 6,000 acre range unit of prairie that's never been plowed. And he said, I was getting a little desertification up on the hill there. And I brought my lick tubs, his mineral lick tubs in there to draw the cattle in. I said, Dugan, let's go there directly. So that's the first place we went on the 6,000 acres because he hadn't been back to see what happened. Well, he had like 16 inches of buffalo grass simply by concentrating the cattle. And it was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, look at how this works. And that's, you know, it, it, it's... Uh, I mean, it's remarkable how it works, but it, it right. And 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 then the flip side, you know, of that argument is the destruction that monocropping soy and corn does to <laughs> the species and natural Everything. habitats. Oh, yeah, right? actually, yeah, I would. I have some figures on that right here. That, that this would be a good time to share it because a lot of people don't realize how. Uh, how deadly cropping industrial food cropping is, and this would be you know, vegetables and grains. Um, there's a lot of unintentional deaths caused by agriculture, and that's in, in part, you know, deaths from the machinery, of course, uh, and also deaths from loss of habitat. So an estimate of the unintentional deaths caused by agriculture that includes only mammals, fish, reptiles, and amphibious creatures range from 
63 million to 170, 127 million. For comparison, uh, that, that's per year. For comparison, 33 million cattle were slaughtered in the United States. So if you're concerned about animal deaths, really the most, some people argue that the most ethical way to eat is eating cattle. That a large are, animal that can feed a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Perennial pasture because the perennial pasture, you've got this year round ground cover and you have habitat uh, for all kinds of animals. And uh, as well as what I think your point that you were making is you've got a large animal. So one death, you know, one cow's death could feed a couple of families for a year. Whereas think how many chickens it would take to feed, how many chicken deaths it would take, and never mind getting into the energy use of raising chicken. <laughs> I often, I, when, when this is a common thing, right, where people say, I don't eat meat, but I eat, I eat chicken. And I'm like, yeah. why? <laughs> that's, the, that's the last meat you that's should eat. That's the worst. Yeah, if you're, don't if get you're, me started. Yeah, if, no, you, if you care about the environment and the ethical <laughs> impact and all of it's the absolute worst meat to eat, but it's the first one that everybody who is concerned Absolutely. about these things Wait, eats. You know why? Th th thanks to Joel, you know, I have to tell you that I started with pigs yeah, just because they were easy. And yeah. we were organic certified and the organic food co-op, I mean, grain co-op unloaded in my shop because we had forklifts to unload the trucks. And I absolutely loved the pigs. We raised them outside, we we're organic certified. But it finally dawned on me that it's the material handling business. We're buying this grain that's grown in the Midwest. It's truck these, even though it's all organic, and we're putting it through this monogastric. Yeah. And that's when I kind of stumbled upon grass fed. And I'm saying, oh my God, here's something with, you know, this rumen, this incredible rumen that can take this biomass that exists here and make a living. And I don't have to bring it anything. I mean, you know, all those, I mean, the chickens are easy because they're cheap and the pigs as well, but, you know, all those pasture pigs, um, you know, movies on YouTube and they're rollicking in the pasture, right outside the picture frame is the three ton feeder. It never makes it into the frame of the photograph, but it's there. The same with the yeah. chicken, you know. Uh, yeah, Ridge is always up, upset when uh, people talk pasture about pastured pigs and pastured chickens because he thinks people equate that with, you know, just on the grass outside and hundred yeah. percent grass fed beef. They and, don't and, understand that they have to be those, those animals have to be fed grain, which is, you don't, it's not true of, of sheep and cattle. So. Yeah. I tell people with, chi you know, the chicken, it's like free range chicken means they have a little balcony on the barn that they can step <laughs> outside on, you know, that that's really what qualifies for free range at this point. For and if you, if you ever have really eaten a truly free range chicken, it might feed a family of three, maybe, <laughs> probably not. It'll probably feed two people, which is why chicken chicken used to be the Sunday occasional Sunday dinner for something different, whereas beef was always the staple in the American diet because it just made so much more sense economically, nutritionally, etc. So let's go on to another method because this is fun. And, and in all seriousness, these are these are things that are still, you know, widely parroted in in the mainstream media. You know, I see them in articles without even being, you know, as statements of fact, like as if the, we're all supposed to expect as readers that just accept that as a statement. Everybody knows it's true, you know, and so right, the, right. there's there's never even any proof or justification offered for those claims that are made. I have a method, unless you want to start yeah, with yours. Yeah, go ahead. We've, well, we've got plenty. Well, I was plenty. just going to say methane. <laughs> the, the, that's yeah. another crazy Oh, yeah, method. there's a big yeah. one. Yep, that's it, on my list, uh, so go, go <laughs> ahead. Well, you know, people often say to us when we talk about the grass-fed beef and we're talking about, um, you know, the carbon, uh, we're talking about, for example, all the carbon that that's um, uh, is oxidized and goes up to the atmosphere is carbon dioxide when when fields are plowed for vegetables and they say well okay that's that's very well i understand your your points about carbon but what about methane and uh so they don't understand that uh 
with methane, with grass-fed beef raised regeneratively, you're talking about uh, a really a much better nutrition, uh, higher quality forages, um, which reduce the, the methane burps and, and therefore lower the amount of methane that the animal generates. But then after that, after there is some methane generated when, when cattle belch, but when they're belching, they're belching out in the pasture. And you've got these methanotrophic bacteria happily living in the pasture right, pasture, right at the soil line. And they, uh, they oxidize the, the methane, just meaning they take electrons from, from the, the methane. That's their sole energy source for these bacteria. And so that, that methane is neutralized. You're, it's not going up into the atmosphere. And of course that beneficial service that the bacteria provide is not provided in the little steel rooms where the methane is measured. For, for, you know, <laughs> and, and I've seen just recently more and more universities are buying these, you know, uh, me, uh, these steel closets to put the cows in to study the how much methane they're producing. But that's you're taking you're well, taking that, that, out of the context. Yeah. So that's that's one place is another oxidation zone. Um, that you're probably aware of, Chris, but most people would not be. And that is um, right where the uh, water vapor is transpired from the pasture plants. And there you have hydroxyl radicals doing the same thing that the bacteria that we just described does. They, they oxidize that methane and they break it down. And that's really a significant amount. I mean, I wouldn't claim that the, the methanotrophic bacteria are are you know zapping all the methane at the soil line, uh, but it's a little farther higher. A little higher is much more significant um, neutralization by these um, hydroxyls. So, so that's two things that uh, you know very significant factors that wouldn't even be taken into account when you've got the, the cattle. In, in this little stainless steel well, right, right. well and at the end of the day you have to go back to the life cycle analysis so so much of the conventional press is oh the cattle are on a feedlot for a shorter period of time less days less water less you know carbon and methane and that's like it's so bogus because they have not gone back and done the life cycle analysis of the corn being raised and trucked to the feedlot and all the nutrients going into the lagoon and then the lagoon breaking and all the nutrients going into the Gulf of Mexico. Nobody's done that life cycle analysis. They're just saying, oh, they're on the feedlot less time. Oh, much better. It's so yeah, well, it, it It goes back to that ridiculous FAO analysis that, that said, you know, greenhouse gas emissions from cattle are 14 and a half percent compared to 14% for the entire transportation sector. And exactly. <laughs> and we're, with the transportation cycle, they did, in, their transportation, they were including the full life cycle analysis, but for, or excuse me, the other way around, for grass, uh, for cattle, they were including the full life cycle of everything, and then for transportation, they were only doing emissions. They weren't looking at the manufacturing, the production, the distribution, what happens to cars after they break, like, the disposal they weren't talking about any of that and and then when when that when that comparison was made i think there was a a, pub, a paper published critiquing that fao analysis they found that globally cattle and this is like conventionally you know mostly conventionally raised cattle but it accounts for 5% uh and transportation for 14% in the us i think cattle it was 3.9% which you know it already is way lower even for conventionally raised right. cattle and then there was the richard teague paper in 2018 that looked at various carbon sequestration rates from multiple sites and he said most most sequester around three to four tons of carbon per hectare per year and some up to seven tons per year so it's it really is like it, yeah, I was just going to point point out when Rich, when Rich, when you were saying nobody's done the life cycle analysis, you mean that that information isn't in the press. But Richard Teague, you know, and oh, there are there are absolutely. a cohort of scientists who have done that work, and what they're not not accounting for that when they talk about the 
cattle needing to fatten longer on grass, they're not talking about the fact that all the time, all the while that they are fattening longer, they're also causing this uh, uh, carbon to be stored in the soil. And when you factor that in, it's been proven that by the life cycle analysis that in fact, uh, they are sequestering more than they're producing. Right. Of, yeah. Of this is a, yeah. This is a this is a good segue to um, kind of our concept of raising cattle, at least in the Northeast, but it applies around the country. Is that there's all these cow calf farms, and the average cow calf farm in the U.S. is thirty to forty head. So in the Northeast, you know, New England, um, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, West Virginia, there's over five hundred thousand calves, beef calves born, not dairy. And according to Mike Baker at Cornell, almost all of them go to the feedlot. So that's a long ways away. And then they come back. But what's gone with those cattle is jobs, nutrients, manure, urine, you know, all that kind of thing. So the concept is you take those cattle from the cow-calf farms, which is the way, that's the bifurcation of the industry the way it is now. You have cow-calf and then you have feedlots. Well, our concept is you have a grass finishing feedlot. So for instance, we have one uh, a farmer in- You, you in meant Europe. to say, Rich, you meant to say grass finishing farm, not feedlot. You just misspoke. Oh, okay. Yeah, I meant finishing. <laughs> yeah, not a feedlot. But, you know, so we have one in, in Vermont. It's 1,800 acres of contiguous grass. They can raise about 850 head of cattle on that farm. Because, well, in the, where in the Northeast, we have this incredible advantage of rain, you know? I mean, one at one point, Bill Nyman and I met in New York City and, you know, we spent about four hours and we talked about cattle, talked about cattle. And he said, Ridge, you know, for a Yankee, you know an awful lot about cattle. And I said, well, I'll take that as a compliment. He said, but you can't raise cattle out here with these trees and these stone walls. I said, wait, 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 Bill. How many acres does it take you to support a bovine in your environment, California? He goes, oh, 15 or 20 acres. I said, Bill, it takes me one or two acres because I have this thing called rain. <laughs> we get 44 inches of it on average. But it yeah. is, it, it is um, the idea of aggregation of, you know, taking all these cows and the calves from these small farms and taking them to a bigger farm to finish them because the, the, this is the key that a lot of people do not understand. You just can't put an, a cow out there and have meat grass. You know, they have to get enough energy from the grass, which requires that they actually have to be moved kind of like the buffalo. They have to be moved through the grass and eat the tops of the plants, which is where the energy is, and continue to move in order to get enough energy to get fat, which is again, you know, the, the whole concept that grass-fed beef is lean, Again, a bogus concept. I mean, you see it all the time at grass-fed beef websites. Oh, our grass-fed beef is lean. And it's just bogus because all the research shows that grass-fed beef is lean. But the, how they do the research, they take 100 head, they put 50 on grain, leave 50 on, on grass. When the ones on grain get fat, they kill them all. Guess what? The ones on grass are not as fat or lean. So why did you do the study? It takes longer to get grass-fed cattle fat. Yeah. But the goal is to get them fat because the fat is where the the real- That's A lot of the nutrients but are. But I think, I think to, follow through on, to follow through on what you're saying, Rich, with this system where you're taking, you know, the different small herds from the neighborhood and, and aggregating them on a larger farm in the same region and moving them multiple times a day with a skilled grazier doing the moving. So you can fatten them quite efficiently that way. And um, in fact, you know, Ridges had fattened cattle at the same rate of gain as, as the feedlot by and doing it right. Crops. And cover crops, right. Yeah, cover crops, using cover crops um, to extend the grazing season. That That's another, you know, people say, oh, how could you do this in the winter and that kind of thing. There's all kinds of, of tricks of the trade that uh, grass farmers have learned all over the country. And this, there's quite a bit to it, but it's quite, you know, it's quite doable. It's quite low tech. And, um, you know, people have learned how to do this well. So 
you're you're not talking about uh, a, a, a terrifically long period of time, and as and the cattle, it's a it's an environmental win in terms of the of greenhouse gases, and that's been established. We have that data now. Let's talk about a couple. We're gonna I'm gonna combine two myths into one, which is, you know, there's a there's a claim, oh, you know, livestock consume food that could be used to feed you know, better used to feed humans. And then a, a similar claim that, and this is from the movie Game Changers, which was just a, tra a travesty of science. I haven't seen it. I don't want to see it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, it's, not, it's, not, it's not worth your time. Um, but one of the claims that's made throughout the film is cattle are just the middlemen and we'd be better off eating the nutrient, just eating the nutrients that cattle eat rather than trying to get them from meat, which is just the most flipped, you know, 100% 180-degree uh, understanding of it. <laughs> try, try eating grass and see how well you digest it. Right, right. So here's the story. So diet for the small planet. Many of us that are in my generation embrace that completely. You know, it's a great idea. Don't feed the grain to cattle. Eat it ourselves. But <laughs> if we take the grain out of the equation completely, and the cattle eating grass, which we cannot eat, it's just, it's, it's, uh, and you know, I've had to have, I've tried to have that discussion with Francis Moeller because, you know, I embrace the diet for a small planet. We have the cookbook downstairs, but, yeah. you know, it, it, again, it's like, yes, she's right. But if, if we take cattle and feed them grass, which we cannot eat, then and 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 now the research is coming in, as you said, was was Stefan and all the phytonutrients. I mean, we can't get them any other way than in grass-fed beef or milk. Yeah, I I think I read that eighty-six percent, eighty-five, eighty-six percent of what cattle eat is inedible by humans. We just exactly. can't cannot eat it at all. Well, right? yeah, I, I think that that when people begin to understand this i think it would be very compelling to them uh, i think the part about you know cattle not eating grain of course is right on uh and particularly again with climate change with with hunger rising it's 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 a crime to be feeding grain to cattle but the other the flip side of that is which which you've you're bringing us into chris is that um there's all this all these plants that you know that people can't eat and these plants have nutrients that would be be important for our health that nutrients that are um bound into inedible fibers um that that we cannot break down so it's very exciting the fact that you take a a pasture with a diversity of plants um you have far more vegetables there than any of us have ever seen in a supermarket and those those vegetables have nutrients. Well, for example, um, they studied the, uh, you know, um, in meat and milk, they found that the uh, uh, the nutrients are concentrated. Uh, the phytonutrients from the plants are concentrated in in the meat and milk of the grass fed cattle, and um, in some they're they're not the you know the protein component is the same of the food. But it's the it's the trace minerals and the vitamins, um, the micronutrients that are there. For example, riboflavin, grass-fed beef twice as much in grass-fed beef as grain-fed, and and there's you know there's there's a whole list of them. But the the point is, you have hundreds of thousands of edible plants in the world, and of those, it's a very small percentage that are actually marketed as food. And so we're trying to get everything we need uh, for our health from you know, what's marketed, what's vegetables that are available in the supermarket, but that's not the half of it at, at all uh, because you have all these uh, nutrients that we can get really only through eating uh, the meat or milk of ruminant animals that, that get it for us and, and digest it you know, with their uh, ruminant digestive system and uh, then pass those nutrients on, on to people. Right, yeah, conjugated linoleic acid is a good example of that. And, and then we have, you know, 
EPA and DHA, where we, studies have shown that pasture-raised meat can actually be a substantial source of those long-chain omega-3 fatty acids that most people don't get enough of. And, and then, like we've discussed, Stefan van Vliet's work and out of his lab showing that phytonutrients that, you know, historically people associate with eating plants, but as you pointed out, Lynn, it, it, a lot of those nutrients are bound up in, in, in cells and fibers that we can't easily digest. And, and I think we're just scratching the surface. Like as, as Stefan oh, would say, <laughs> you know, this, this, this new research on the, on the phytonutrient content of beef is like a year old, <laughs> you know, we're, right, we're right. still, we're still learning about and, and with these new metabolomics and then all of the omics and our ability to to understand the composition of foods and nutrients better than we ever have, I think it's we're going to be learning even more in the next few years about the, the the health benefits of animals that are raised on pasture. If you even if you go back to the old uh, omega six omega three ratio, the the for for human health we need it uh, in like a two to one. 1.2 to 1. And when you feed grain, you get like 10 to 15 to 1. So, so, and, and, you know, a lot of people say, well, the omega-6 are the bad, omega-3 are good, but they, but they're both essential fatty acids. We need them for brains and nerves, but they got to be in the right balance for human health. So when you look at the fact that, you know, 97% of the beef is fed grain and has switched up that omega-3, omega-6 fatty acid ratio, I mean, it's really a crime to our health. In the, the background, American diet is as high as 30 to 1 now uh, because of all the fr fried and processed foods that are high in omega-6. So it makes it even more important that people aren't getting additional omega-6 from the animal products that they're consuming, which, you know, going back to chicken is even higher in omega-6 because, yeah, right. uh, you know, they're eating... Well, it's the grain. It's the, yeah. the key is what people don't get is Soy. it's the grain. Yeah, it's the grain that makes that switch. Yeah. Another thing that I think it's really important for us to uh, cover, because I, I know we've been at talking for a long time, but we haven't mentioned the fact that uh, food is now, you know, nutrient deficient. That that food is not as nutritious as it used to be, and uh, and I think that people are be getting aware of that. And but it's important for them to realize how did this happen, and it happened because the market marketing has been favoring the quantity over quality but to get the quality to get the nutrient density you just have to go back to the soil it all comes from healthy soil and as our soils have been degraded our food has been degraded so um you know i always say that regenerative agriculture and regenerative grazing is building on you know other soil focused movements like the organic movement permaculture absolutely these soil focus because that that's you know that's what we all depend on is the soil so that's what uh, re regenerative grazing and grass-fed beef is all about the soil and um it's it's all about and i would i would even just say just because you started with this we cannot have healthy soil without animals without herbivores yeah, full, full stop full stop 100 percent. Right, right. period <laughs> you know and w one other thing i want to throw in because you you've got a lot of people watching this i think who are consumers and it always comes up to price and one of my favorite little dual slides is comparing a sticker bar to a pound of grass-fed beef now not that saying that a sticker bar is good for you but a sticker bar costs about $1.23 per ounce. And grass-fed beef at $8 a pound is still only 50 cents an ounce. You know, before we even discuss what's good for you. But so much of our food has been just kind of destroyed nutritionally and then sold to us in a way that we're like, oh, okay, we'll throw that box of cereal in the basket. Oh, that's that's inexpensive. Yeah. Yeah. But the real healthy food is actually very cheap. Yeah, what it can do for you. you yeah. Well, Landon Ridge, this has been an amazing interview. I, I really enjoyed talking to you both. I, I love your book, Grass-Fed Beef for a Post-Pandemic World, uh, How Regenerative Grazing Can Restore Soils and Stabilize the Climate. Uh, for the listeners, if you've enjoyed this conversation, I think you'll love the book as well. It's on Amazon. Get it elsewhere. I highly recommend uh, reading it because... Uh, there's, as we started with, there's so many myths and misconceptions 
And I think even for those of us who are aware of this, they can still sort of infiltrate <laughs> you know, our minds or it's just getting educated about this stuff so we can talk to others about it and so we can make informed choices is, is really important. So Ridge and Lynn, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And Appreciate thank it. You for, thank you for the book. And everybody, uh, listen, keep sending your questions, chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.